Welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata. I'm really excited to have Dr. Garforth back on the program. She's going to be taking us through an in-depth talk on her approach to reading instruction today. I hope you enjoy it. All right, so when I think about reading instruction, I really like to explain to teachers a couple of foundational concepts that give them a better understanding of how reading actually happens for our students. And one great graphic that I like to reference is Nancy Young's The Ladder of Reading. Now, she originally published this in 2012, but it's been updated for 2020. And it contains, you know, information that tells us about how students go to learn about reading. Um, and it says, or through the research that we've had over the years, we know that there's about 5% of our students that are going to learn how to read almost effortlessly. These are the students that pick it up, you know, when they're three, four, five years old at home. And it's because just with how they've had the exposure at home and they've just figured it out themselves. Now that's only 5% of students and they're the ones that you're like, wow, I can't believe they know how to do that when they enter kindergarten. Um, and then there's another 35% of students that are going to learn how to read regardless of how you teach them. And they just need to be shown, you know, the basics of how it works. These are the kids that, you know, do the Lego uh, project without having to look really at the instructions. They know what it looks like. They can figure it out how to build it. But then you have another 40 to 50% of students that need to have instruction that's code-based, explicit, systematic, and sequential so that they can have access to the reading. They need to know the, more than just the basics. They're going to need that Lego manual to show them step-by-step step how to build a project. And then at the bottom, you have the 10 to 15% of students who have a specific learning disability in reading or dyslexia. And these are the students that have a lot of intervention that is needed. They need to learn how to read with a code-based, explicit, systematic, sequential process of teaching them how to read. And you need to look at the diagnostic information about that student to figure out the best way to teach them. Now, the thing about when you look at this, you also see that all of these students are going to benefit from learning language in a structured literacy approach. And what that means is we're not leaving these concepts and ideas to chance. And um, when I discuss more about um, my approach to teaching reading and phonics, I'm going to be talking about uh, phones themes and morphemes and morphological awareness. These are things that those 5% and those 35% of kids that are learning to read easily, they're not going to have picked up on their own. So these are concepts that are going to allow us to extend our um, students' knowledge, and it's not going to hurt them to learn it. And so if, if we take a structured literacy approach, it's going to give all these students access to the information and limit the number of students that need to do that pull-out and small group instruction to give them access to reading. Now, it's important for me to note that this structured literacy approach is going to help your ESL students. 
Uh, it's going to help your students with other um, issues that are being roadblocks to their reading because you're going to be focusing on a variety of components. So that's what I like teachers to have a basic understanding of is we don't all approach reading with the same tabula rosa, I guess. Mm -hmm. You don't approach it with the same background knowledge, but in the same breath, as I mentioned before in the last episode, how reading is not a natural process. So every single person on this ladder was born with a brain that did not have a specific area for reading. All of these individuals had to learn how to connect three regions within their brain to become readers. And it just means that the kids at the top of the ladder had an easier time doing it than the kids at the bottom of the ladder. And we need to make sure that we provide the ones at the bottom of the ladder with more information to do so. Yeah, I, that that makes a lot of sense. It's something I've heard before. I wasn't familiar of the origin of that. Um, oh, okay. uh, explanation, but it, it makes total sense to me. So when we, to get into more specifics, so mm -hmm. I understand that we're probably going to be talking a lot about phonics here. Um, so what specific phonological, um, strategies do you like to use for teaching students? Before we get into that, I should I probably, um, mention what I mean about structured literacy. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and when I talk about structured literacy, I mean using a uh, approach to teaching reading um, based on reading science. Mm -hmm. And reading science is what has evolved over the last 40 years of research on reading instruction. Um, and the reason why a lot of teachers don't have a background on this is that it wasn't explicitly through educational research it's been research in educational psychology cognitive neuroscience um, linguistics and a variety of areas that we've gotten this information from so in order to find it you need to look at a lot of sources and as a teacher you don't have a lot of spare time <laughs> so uh it's really important that you're able to get this information concisely um and there are five major components of reading or aspects that go into reading. Um, now let me start that again. Um, so in the late eighties, um, we came up with the simple view of reading it was first introduced and that's that reading can be broken into two components. The decoding component where you're trying to figure out what the word says and the understanding of the words, the language comprehension. And we need both of those components to become a skilled reader who can understand what they're reading. Now, in uh, 2001, Hollis Scarborough created her reading rope. And this took those components of the simple view of reading and made them into bigger categories where we understand more of what goes into those. And... Then again, as it's evolved over time, we've taken these founding concepts and created um, something that's commonly referred to as 
um, the science of reading or reading science. And that basically is telling us that there are five essential skills when it comes to reading. And these have subparts, which we can talk about later, but they are phonological awareness, phonics, vocabulary, reading fluency, and reading comprehension. Now, our goal is to make sure that students are proficient in all of these five areas so that they can have the end goal of what we typically think of reading is, the ability to read something and understand what we are reading. Mm-hmm. Now, when we look at these skills, there are ones that we need to make sure we're very explicit about teaching and then there are ways that we can do this that are fun and game-like that doesn't actually involve sitting down with our students and reading books to them right um so the the biggest the one of the big foundational building blocks for having the ability for our students to read is phonological awareness and again this is something that was not brought up in my teaching program until i brought it up it was not brought up in mine either. Yeah. Phonological awareness is an awareness of the sounds within uh, the language. And it's really important that our students have this because um, for our E... What, what term do you guys use? Do you use ELL or... ELL, yeah. Yeah. So for English language learners... Um, the problem with not having English as their first language is they may not have an awareness of all the phonemes within the English language. And those are the speech sounds. So making sure that we take the time to give them this awareness so they are aware of those common sounds of English, then that means that they'll have better access and their speech will get better. So we'll be able to understand what they're saying better, which is beneficial for everyone. Um, and help reduces the frustration. But phonological awareness is something that I like to think of as being imposed on the Eiffel Tower, similar to the reading ladder. Um, and that, so at the bottom level, I have word awareness. And word awareness is a basic awareness that our students should be coming to us with, at least unconsciously. They should know when one word begins and the next one Uh, Sorry, one word ends and the next one begins. Now, word awareness is something that is meaning that when you tell them to write a sentence, they know how many words are in the sentence. And when they're writing words down, they're knowing where to put those spaces in. Then we go up to the syllable awareness, and that's their ability to count the syllables within a word. Now, this is a common strategy that's used in reading instruction uh, to get the kids to chunk the word into the syllables so it's easier for them to sound out. Then we have onset rhyme awareness, which is where we can break the syllable into its initial consonant sounds that come before the vowel, and that's considered the onset Uh, And then into the rhyme, which is the vowel sound and any final consonant sounds within the syllable. So this is when um, you have your beginning reader or speller. It'll be k, at, right? And they're learning about rhyming words and that sort of thing. And then the highest level, this is the hardest one that most students are going to need help achieving. And that's the phonological awareness. 
And honestly, as adults, a lot of us struggle with a higher levels of phonological awareness. And it's particularly harder when you already know how to read to work on this skill. Because phonological awareness has to do with the individual speech sounds. And uh, in the English language, there are between 41 and 44 speech sounds, depending on the dialect that you speak. Um, and these speech sounds can be represented by over 200 different letter combinations. So one example that I like to give is the word button. Now, as someone that knows how to read and spell, if you're going to be sounding or breaking that word into the phonemes, you're going to be likely thinking about how the word is spelled in your brain. So when you break it into its speech sounds, you're going to go b, a, t, t, a, n. Now, the problem with that is it actually only has five phonemes. The, there are two T's that represent one speech sound. So if I were to break that into its phonemes, it would go b, a, t, a, n. Mm. And so it's, it's a skill that you definitely need to work on. And then um, more advanced phonological awareness, or sorry, phonemic awareness skills involve the ability to manipulate those sounds within the word. And, um, you know, as an, a teacher, there's great ways to do that. Um, and you can, you know, speak Pig Latin to your students where you're taking that onset of the word away, putting it at the end of the syllable, or sorry, at the end of the word and following it by A. Uh, I'm not very good at speaking Pig Latin. <laughs> so, Me neither. My wife's amazing at it, though. But she actually speaks some Latin, so that helps. Yeah. Um, so those are activities. Or if you're singing Happy Birthday to a student, um, say, have it so the students change the words to have the onset of the first of the onset of the student's name so for example if you were saying happy birthday to pam you would sing happy birthday to pam right mm -hmm. and it's just getting them to manipulate those things now the reason why phonemic awareness is so important is that when we're teaching our students phonics you're teaching them the letter sound correspondence so when they're sounding out a word like the word cat they're going to say k, a, t. So they're sounding out the word, and the phonemes are segmented into their individual spots. You want them to have the skills to blend those phonemes together to read the word cat, right? And so these are activities that you can work on before you're actually teaching reading. And then when you're asking your student to spell a word, you often tell them to sound it out. Well, they can't sound out a word unless they can segment it into its individual speech sounds. So you would give them a word like pan, and they would have to go pan, p, a, n, to sound it out, right? Mm -hmm. So these are skills that you can teach them in the, the, you know, in kindergarten, early grade one, to help them get ready for the phonics instruction and get ready for reading and spelling instruction. Yeah, this, so, oh, sorry. Hmm? No, sorry, you, <laughs> you keep going. Uh, those, those are the foundations in phonological awareness that I think are really important to work on for students, all students in your class, because it's going to help your English language lawyers. It's going to help your students that have speech and language problems and your classroom students. And 
one thing that I've noticed uh, when I've been working in research and doing this with students is a lot of those kids that were early readers and, you know, in those top uh, 40%, they actually have weaker phonological awareness than ones because they didn't have to focus on it. And it's a very good skill for them to have. And it will help them uh, so you can still work on this. And one anecdotal thing that I thought I would add is that I've done uh, worked with a lot of individuals who have had um, speech and language issues. And through doing these phonological awareness activities, it has made their speech clearer. And, you know, it's, it's a great way because it helps everyone out. It helps you understand what they're saying and it helps them get their information across. So it's not just helping on the reading. And, you know, for those English language learners who are used to or not used to the phonemes in the English language, uh, it, it helps them gain that awareness. And then it makes it that transition to learning how to read that much better. And this is something that you should work on with students um, regardless of age, even adults, uh, because it's one of the highest predictors or one of the areas that people with dyslexia or learning disabilities in reading have a problem with. They have a problem with reading and spelling because they're not always sure whether the phonemes are what they think they hear. And it's challenging. Yeah. That's really fascinating. Uh, the when you're talking about the difference between phonemic, phonemic phonemic awareness, sorry, and phonics, it sort of reminds me of the difference between conceptual math, procedural math, in the sense that the phonics is almost like the well, this is how we do it, and this is yeah. the what behind we're doing. Um, yeah. Which is not a way I've ever looked at phonics before. I have to admit, I've always just focused on more of the the phonics instruction itself, of the uh, not so much the phonemic awareness personally. Um, I just want to make a clarification to our audience because when you're talking about the different strands of reading and the different um, components to it, I, I don't want our audience to get, um, as you called it, structured literacy confused with balanced literacy. So how would you define the difference between those two instructional uh, frameworks? Um, I would say that balanced literacy is very much a discovery-based approach where they don't follow up with explicit instruction if students don't get it. If students don't get it, they don't get it. Whereas structured literacy um, is you teach every skill to mastery, right? There is the option for students to discover it in a playful style, but for the students that don't, you make sure that they're taught it so they're not missing that key step. Structured literacy is all about building a solid foundation for the students so that they have the skills they need to decode the words and get information from the text without leaving it out. Whereas balanced literacy doesn't focus on making sure that there's that solid foundation. It's fine if it's cement, it's fine if it's sand. And if there's problems with erosion, oh well. That's a really good point. And so there's just a, uh, one more follow-up on that. Would it be fair to say, because this might be my false interpretation, but would it be fair mm-hmm. to say that structural literacy also places a greater emphasis on the timing of different aspects of uh, yes. the components? Yeah. Okay. Right. So Yeah, you definitely want it sequenced and explicit. 
So you want to be focusing on the skills that lead up to each other. So you're going to work on word awareness before you work on syllable awareness to make sure that the child has that. Um, and then you're going to work on, you know, finding rhymes and words that begin with the same first sound. Um, and then as they get better at these skills, you're going to add the next skill on, but you want to make sure that they have the first skill before they work on the next. Yeah. As, uh, I've read, uh, articles on balanced literacy, the interpretation I've had is that, you know, you're supposed to sort of do everything at the same time, which is not in an equal weight, which is not something I'm personally very comfortable with, but no. Well, and that, that's the thing, and that we'll, we'll discuss that more when we talk about phonics okay. uh, instruction. So, so, well, before we move on to, to phonics, why don't you tell us about some strategies you use to teach your students um, phonemic awareness? Okay. Um, so if I were a teacher and I'm wanting to work on phonological awareness, um, especially if I don't have a lot of background in it, I would start off by... Um, administering a screening measure. Now, you can get a free measure um, at www.thepasttest.com. And this is a great measure um, that will give you a better idea about what skills your student needs to work on. Um, and basically, I like to see whether a student can count the number of words in a sentence, whether they can count the number of syllables in a word, whether they can break a word into its phonemes, and then work on the level that they need to work on. Because there's no point in working with a student on phonemic awareness if they're still struggling with counting the number of syllables in a word, because they don't have the foundational skills yet to work on the phonemic awareness. So I guess any intervention that I do when I work with students, I work on figuring out where they're at to figure out where I need to start the intervention to get them to where I want them to go. So if they're still struggling with, you know, picking out rhyming words or figuring out when there's an alliteration, then I start working on those skills. So I would um, have them, um, try and detect rhyme when I'm reading them a poem. Mm -hmm. uh, and then once they're able to identify it, then they can start creating it, right? Mm -hmm. So they need to know that if I say Jack and Jill went up the hill, that Jill and Hill rhymed before I can ask them what rhymes with the word pan, right? Um, and then they need to be able to tell if two words start with the same sound, like sun and star. Um, and if they can't tell me when I give them the words, then they're not going to be able to come with, up with it themselves, right? So you can, in the early grades, you can do this with pictures. Um, or you can have, you know, get a whole bunch of different toys and let's group the ones that start with the same first sound together. Um, and then you work on words that have the same last sound, right? Do um, fad and mad have the same last sound? 
then you work on um, having them identify it and then come up with it themselves. So you can do fun activities where you do silly stories and have rhyming words at the end, but you also need to make sure that they know the difference between the words that are true rhymes or words that end with the same sound. So um, fad and um, fod end with the same d sound, but they don't rhyme. And one thing I want to highlight when you're doing anything related to phonological awareness, you don't want to be including letters in it. Because as soon as you include letters, then it's a phonics lesson. Okay. Right? That's really interesting. And so, like, phone and fin start with the same f sound, right? But they begin with different letters. So if you're doing that in a lesson and showing letters then you're going to have confusion in the student, and that's not the skill that you're trying to work on. You just want to know if the student is aware of the same first sounds. Makes total sense. Um, and another thing that I wanted to mention about phonological, sorry, phonemic awareness is that you want to make sure that you're very crisp in your pronunciation of the sounds. Um, as teachers, we kind of naturally try and accentuate what we're trying to teach. So if you are working on teaching the sound that the letter B makes, you might go ba, but really that's two phonemes. That's b and a, right? So you need to be very crisp in your pronunciation, ba. Um, because that's going to help the students when they're sounding out words. So if you said bell, well, bell is more like ba. Right, bell mm -hmm. instead of ball. So if you're saying ba, when you're teaching B says ba for ball, but when they come to bell, what well, doesn't say ba? It says ba. Um, so again, it's just retraining yourself to um, be more punctuated in what you're saying. And um, you know, there are even more advanced phonological awareness programs that work on, you know, teaching the structure and how the sounds are produced um, and looking at, you know, more of a linguistic approach to teaching it. And that's, you know, a great approach for teachers if they want to invest the time into it and the money into it. I mean, uh, the letters program um, that Louisa Motes does is great for this. Um, but at, at the beginning, I, I suggest just working on learning your phonemes. Um, and, you know, you'd be surprised at the 44 different phonemes and how they're represented uh, in the international uh, phon, uh, phonon, what is it? The IPA, whatever mm. that stands for. <laughs> Isn't International Phonological Alphabet. Yes. I think. Um, so, yeah, and things like that mm, sound insane. Well, that's one phoneme. And the x sound for x is actually two phonemes. It's the k and the s sound. Mm. So if I were asking you for a more advanced activity to take a sound away from a word, and I say, take the k out of box, you would say boss. Oh, wow. I don't think I could do that if you gave me that. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. So it's, 
those are the, some of the more advanced things. But when you're working with younger students in their earlier grades and individuals that have problems with phonological awareness, I would start by using compound words, like say baseball. Mm-hmm. And they'd say baseball. And then I'd say, okay, well, now say baseball without the base. And then they'd say ball. So that way they're going to um, say, learn how to manipulate the sounds and segment them. So, and then I could say, well, instead of saying base in baseball, say basket, and then they would say basketball, right? So they're learning how to play with and manipulate the words. And this is something that they have a bit of an unconscious awareness as long as they're able to, you know, make a word plural. So like a one star or two stars, right? So that's their ability to add this phoneme to make it plural. Or can you please stop? Uh, Fred stopped that, right? They're adding the past tense suffix to it, right? So it's important, I guess, for educators to see that there are real-world applications to this, right? When we're changing a word by adding morphemes to it, Mm -hmm. uh, or the prefixes and suffixes, we're changing what the word is. And so... There are real applications to this. When we're teaching the kids to blend and segment the sounds, we are teaching them how to decode and encode words in the written language. Um, Yeah, and counting syllables, again, that's going to help them break words up when they come to multisyllabic words when they're reading. So that's where the, the phonological awareness piece really comes in, and especially for the students that struggle with it. Um, I mean, if you struggle with phonological awareness, it doesn't mean you can't hear. It just means that you have a problem distinguishing between the two sounds. So if you're saying Brian and Ryan, you realize the difference, Mm -hmm. right? And Pat and Pitt, you realize the difference. And this can be challenging. And especially for our ELL learners, who may not have the same phonemes in their uh, home languages. Okay, that's really interesting. So, uh, is there? Do you have on your your website um, any resources for people to access for this type of um, uh, activities or instructional methods? Um, well, I have um, some blog posts on it. Okay. Um, but then I also have um, a course that I've created for teachers called A Teacher's Guide to Reading Science. Okay. And in that course, I give you know more detailed background into what reading science is. And then I have a whole module on each of the uh, five components, the phonological awareness, the phonics, the vocabulary, reading fluency, and reading comprehension. And in that, I have workbooks where I have um, colored version and black line masters versions of some of the activities that teachers can use. Um, and I have clip cards um, and, you know, word lists when you're working on syllables. It's kind of hard to come up on, <laughs> you know, a five-syllable word or a four-syllable word on the spot. Um, but they're, they're definitely resources online or on my website that you can access. And I do have a, a group called, um, Garforth Education's educator group on Facebook that I post this stuff regularly to. Okay. Um, 
what is the the name of your website? I know normally I would ask for this at the end, but this seems to be such a, a specific and unique aspect from other interviews we've had on this topic. And I just want to make sure if our listeners want more information, they can easily get to that information. Okay, so it's www.garforth.education.com. And Garforth is spelled G-A-R-F-O-R-T-H. And then education. Okay, so <laughs> that's that's great. So moving into the more phonics perspective, uh, specific side of this. Um, is there a particular way you advocate teachers um, teach phonics? There's so many different um, methodologies for this, and I'm curious to which one you advocate for, if you advocate for multiple. Okay, so I advocate for a explicit, systematic, synthetic phonics program where you're teaching the students phonics in a logical order, not an alphabetical order. Um, and there are different, depending on the program you see, there's different sequence of letters to teach. Um, but so traditionally, or as often the case that if a teacher doesn't have a huge phonics background, they're going to be teaching students, uh, phonics in alphabetical order. Mm -hmm. So they would start with teaching A, B, C, D, E, F. Now, when you try and combine those letters into words that are meaningful for a beginning reader, there are very, very few words that are going to be meaningful for your reader um, with just those letters in them. Uh, and so that means that it's going to take a long time before they can actually read something that they can understand and feel the use for. Whereas an explicit, systematic, synthetic approach to teaching phonics you're teaching them high-frequency letters that can combine together to make words right away. And they're going to actually see how they can use these letter sound correspondences to make words and read. So the ones that I personally start off with are S-A-T-P-I-N. So when you see or when you hear these letters, uh, you're probably already thinking of words that you can make with these letters and there are more than 40 words that are in the consonant vowel consonant or consonant consonant vowel consonant again like the basic one syllable short vowel sound word that your student can read from the beginning once they know these six letters and yes there are going to be words that they're not going to be able to read if you're going to ask them to read a short story but there are several decodable texts available free online where you have these six letters creating stories. And the reason why I'm such a big advocate for using this type of approach to reading is you're setting your student up for success. And success breeds success, right? So if they feel that they're successful in reading, knowing these and they have the skills to read these words using these six letters, they're going to have so much more joy. And yes, they're not going to be reading the most interesting books, but that's not going to last long because you can add the letters fairly quickly. And there are going to be the words that they're not going to know like the or said, but there are other ways that you can teach those to the students and make it so that they can read these books. So 
90 to 95% of the words that they're going to read in these books, they know how to sound out. And they're not struggling and having to guess or use context cues or look at the pictures. They are being able to get this information by looking at the letters, uh, using those letter sound correspondences and saying them and then blending them together to create the word. They have the skills to do it and they can do it. So they can gain confidence and feel proud of themselves very quickly. Um, whereas, you know, if you're using one of the leveled text or the predictable text that we so often get sent home with home reading instruction, it's frustrating because you're, if you start with A, B, C, D, E, F, you know, the, the words that they come across, they're not going to know how to read those. So they're going to have to use context cues. They're going to have to look at the pictures to try and figure what the uh, books say because it doesn't have the information that they need to sound out the words. They, they don't have the skills to do it. They have to draw on other sources. But when we look at research, we know that this isn't what, you know, skilled readers do. They don't look at context and try and guess what the words should be. They uh, look at the letters and try and sound them out. Yeah. Um, that's such an interesting thing. So, I, you know, something I, I didn't think about uh, asking before you started talking that I should have asked is, could we define to the audience the difference between um, synthetic, analytic, and systematic phonics? Yeah, sure. Um, so... Um, I'm going to go with Marcia Henry's definition just um, because I think they're really succinct okay. and uh, explain the overall concept. So she defines analytic phonics as an instructional approach in which students learn whole words and deduce the component parts such as phonemes, whereas synthetic phonics is an instructional approach with in which students learn letter sound correspondence and blend parts to make the whole words. So it's basically looking at whether it's a top-down approach where you're looking at the word and then trying to figure it out, or a bottom-up approach where you're looking at the letters, figuring out their sounds, and trying to see what the word says. And the Synthetic phonics is where you find the decodable texts and have it so that children are only being asked to read words that they should already have the skills to understand and be able to decode those words for about 90% of the words in the book. Whereas using analytic phonics, you're going to typically use those leveled texts that are the predictable texts, and they're going to be asked to read words that have letters in them that you haven't taught them yet. makes total sense so why would you uh say that synthetic phonics is better to use than analytic because you are not over facing a child with information and asking them to do something they don't have the skills to do um as a parent you wouldn't put your toddler on a balance beam and then sorry not your toddler your your infant that's just crying on a thin balance beam and effect, expect them to get across it without falling over, yeah. right? They don't have the skills. They don't have the muscle development. They don't know what to do. 
So if you're giving your student a decodable, te- sorry, a, a predictable text or a leveled reader, they don't necessarily have the skills to do the reading. And, you know, one criticism of using the decodable text is that they're boring and, you know, that kids get bored quickly of them. But I'm not saying that you have to use decodable text for all the literature you present them. I'm only saying that you need to use these when you're asking them to read. So when you're reading to them, you read them, you know, the novels and the chapter books and the exciting books with great language. But you don't ask them to read them until they have the skills to do so. And, you know, if you do have the students that have the ability to, um, you know, and come to your class reading, that doesn't mean that they can't go through this process. And during their free time when they're looking through books, they're welcome to look at those books. Right. And they can try reading them, but you're not actually expecting them to read them. Yeah, that's a really good response. So, um, huh? Yeah, I, I've just I, I've I've kind of been reflecting on this uh, myself, and I was wondering personally, does it make sense to start with synthetic phonics and move to analytic phonics later? Well, so I guess it all depends how you look at it. I mean, I would say no, but okay. when I think of phonics instruction, I don't think of just teaching letter sound correspondences, right? Mm -hmm. I also think of including phone themes instructions, and that's where you're teaching a little bit more about how to access the meaning based on the spelling of the word or information you found within the word. So, for example, words that have the consonant blend GL in it usually have something to do with shining. So, like, glitter, gleam, glisten. There's a a shiny thing. So you can start teaching them these relationships between the letters and the meanings. Um, Another one that I like to use an example is when you have um, a science word uh, and you hear the sound. Well, that is going to be represented by a PH because most of our science words uh, have a Greek origin. And that's how the Greeks represented the sound to it. And when it comes to phonics instruction, you'll recall that I said when we were talking about uh, phonemes that we have 44 phonemes. And the problem is that we use a Roman alphabet where there's only 26 letters. And so there's no way that we can represent the phonemes in our language with the uh, letters that we have. So we have to double up, use a couple letters um, for several sounds. I mean, if you think of the sound A, there I think there's about... Eight, at least eight ways to spell the sound A. There's words. a lot for sure. And, you know, that's where looking at word origin and etymology is important because that helps you understand how the spelling of that vowel sound uh, might be used. And then, you know, if you take a look at morphology and looking at the different morphemes, which are the prefixes, roots, bases, and suffixes in words, then it gives you more information. And if you take that approach, you can explain why the word said is spelled S-A-I-D. And that's because the present tense uh, form of said is say. And if you were to add the suffix E-D, it would be S-A-Y-E-D. 
But we know when you add the suffix ed to a word with a y, you typically change the y to i and add ed. But then with say, you would have s-a-i-e-d. And a-i-e is not a legal letter combination in the English language. So it's spelled S-A-I-D, um, and that's how we have said. That's, that's really fascinating. Um, it, but it's also something to get across in its incredible complexity to the audience in an uh, instructive way in the podcast format. Is there a resource you would recommend to our, our listeners for this specific type of knowledge? Um, well... Marcia Henry has the Unlocking Literacy book, um, where she looks at teaching effective decoding and spelling instruction. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of resources on um, teaching morphological awareness, um, and it's teaching the prefixes, suffixes, and bases or roots. Um, I do uh, Morpheme Mondays, which is every Monday I post information about morphemes on my blog. Uh, so you can find out more about it there. There are um, some good resources online. Um, what is it called? There's an... Um, sorry, I'm just looking for the link. That's okay. So online, there's the online etymology dictionary that has um, information about where words come from. Mm -hmm. And then there are websites such as um, there's the learnthat.org mm -hmm. that has a good compilation of different um, prefixes, and suffixes, and bases where you can get that information. Uh, Gina Cook at the Linguistic Educator Exchange has a lot of information about morphological awareness and teaching using um, word webs and morpheme matrices. And this is the type of instruction that I encourage, especially as you get um, you know, older students in the intermediate and high school grades, where you can help teach them um, you know, the different morphemes that we're going to help them learn new vocabulary words. Because as I mentioned uh, before, once children get to intermediate grades, they're going to be learning 3,000 to 4,000 new words a year. So a lot of that is going to be coming from words that they come across when they're reading and they don't know what they mean. So if you're giving them skills in class to learn about these words and how to get information from them, you're giving them the skills they have to use when they're learning uh, new vocabulary words. And well, the, you know, if you look at the Greek and Latin roots, they're not very common in our everyday spoken language, but as soon as you go over to the academic language, in science and mathematics, um, social studies, and e 
even some of the illiteracy terms, they have those Greek and Latin roots in them so that you're able to dissect the word to try and figure out the meaning. Um, and you can use different word webs and matrices when you're teaching, uh, you know, when you're doing your introductory lessons in a unit on different science topics, math topics, um, history topics, and gives them the relationship between these words. Well, that that's fantastic. Um, so we, we've covered all of our major questions for the first two parts of this interview. Um, uh-huh. And I just want to say to our, our audience, um, I we've had some, you know, very, we've been very fortunate on this podcast to have some very well-known and, um, uh, inc- for lack of a better term, famous uh, scholars on this podcast, but uh, you might be the most knowledgeable scholar we've ever had on this podcast. You've blown me Thank away you. with your level of insight. Um, you know, as someone who spends a lot of my day reading about this stuff before I do these interviews, normally I feel like a lot of the contents I'm hearing is review for me, but there was right. a lot of stuff I'm hearing today that it, it's my first time hearing it. So that was oh. um, uh, a, a nice little surprise. Um, I... I'm really happy to have had you on the podcast today. So, I, well, thank you very much for inviting me. I would like to break this interview up into um, a third part, and I think we might have to schedule another recording day to sure That's to finish fine. off. Okay. So, um, do you have any final thoughts you want to say to our listeners before I end this recording? Um, I think. The, the biggest things that I want you to take away is that it's okay that if your PDP program didn't cover this stuff and you're not the only one that had that experience. Um, so many educators don't have this information in what they've been taught and are in that state of trying to figure out, do I make the effort into learning this? And I think it's really rewarding to find this stuff out and you'll probably get several aha moments and, you know, wish you knew this earlier in your career, but you know, it's, it's more important to learn it now and make a difference for the students that you can and not worry about the students in the past that you weren't able to help because if you don't know, that's fine. But if you know better, you need to do better. Um, and you know, if you ever want to reach out for me to get more information, uh, you can feel free to do that on Twitter or Facebook or any of the social media platforms. I'd be happy to point you to the right resources or help you with students, uh, that you need some help with because everybody has the right to have the access to learn how to read. And it's really important that we focus on teaching those skills even after they've been given uh, adaptations and accommodations within their program. Um, And one thing that uh, is important to mention that I don't think I discussed, but even uh, when you go into an IEP meeting and you're putting a student on a modified program for whatever reason, you should always have a plan in place to get them off that modified program. So there's nothing wrong with putting a student that can't read on a modified reading uh, program so that they can catch up and learn how to read. But you need to have everything set in place so that once they can read, they are able 
to work on the skills at their appropriate grade level. But I'm sure I could do an entire interview on IAPs alone. So. Oh, wow. Well, uh, you are a fountain of knowledge on the subject. Everybody should check out your website. Um, thank you. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you.